Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. Help us to see what you would want us to see as we go through this and, and follow what you would want us to, to learn from this. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Job chapter 4 and chapter 3, we had Job speaking. He had been sitting down for a week with his friends, just looking at each other and crying with each other. And then Job started speaking and said, I wish I was never born. Not, not I wish that this didn't happen, but I just wish that my entire uh, I had never been born. He even goes so far as to say, I wish the day that I was born had been wiped off the, the, the calendar, or, you know, not even celebrate that day. Uh, so that was how depressed he is about all this. And he started out with that attitude when he speaks to this. So now in, ver- in chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Timonites answered him and said, If we essay to commune with you, will you be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upholded him that was fallen, and you have strengthened the feeble knees. But now is it come upon you, and you faint. It touches you, and you are troubled. So we're going to stop there for just a moment, because this is very interesting. Now, very interesting, the word, the name Eliphaz, literally means my god is fine gold (laughs) my god is is fine gold (laughs) so he is not even you know by his name very good so and he's a telmanite which we talked about a couple couple weeks ago that he is the grandson of esau so he is related to abraham in that aspect of it so we've got all these things happening and again, we talked about how these guys that are coming to see Job are related to Abraham through roundabout, roundabout ways. So we know that Job and Abraham, about a half, a, half to a full generation apart, but in that, time, that same time frame. Because uh, it's his grandsons and, that are coming to talk to Job and to encourage him. And Abraham's grandsons are talking to Job. <laughs> So we're about a generation down so that Job is actually older than most of the guys talking to him. Um, he at one time, by the when we read this, seems to have been their teacher, their advisor, their instructor. Uh, so he says, and Eliphaz says, if we say, if we are trying to, to reprove you, uh, to commune with you, Will you be grieved or impatient? Now, have you ever tried to correct somebody and they have no patience? They, they get angry at you because they don't like what you're saying. They, they cut you off like you don't know what you're talking. In this case, he's actually, and this is why we're setting the stage, these guys are younger than Job to begin with. And they're going, if we try to help correct you, are you going to get angry with us are you going to get impatient with us Uh, because he's the one that has been training them helping them teaching them Uh, but then he goes but who can withhold himself from speaking job you're in such a mess we just cannot help but trying to help you what does a say mean again a say is to test or try prove uh, you assay metals, it would mean that you found something, you think it's gold, you would take it into assay office and they would find out, is it, is it really, was it really gold or, or not? So he's saying, we're going to prove, you know, we're going to prove to commune with you, or we're going we're to try to correct you, or, you know, are you going to get impatient and get upset with us? Kind of like begging with them, you know, but, and then he's going, but who can stop? You know, whether you do or whether you don't, we just can't help ourselves. We have got to open up our mouths and talk. Now, this can be a good thing. There are times when we have to open our mouth and talk whether we want to or not. But there's other times when we need to just learn to shut up and not say anything. I don't know. When we listen to what they said, I think they would have been better off keeping their mouths shut and not talking. Uh, but there are times when you have to just make a point with somebody and make the correction. And in some cases, that shouldn't, could have been what they needed to do with, with Job, but what they say is not good. All right? Um, and so he starts with the very first point. Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. 
In other words, Job, you have done a very good job teaching others when they've been down. You've instructed them. You've taught them. You have lifted them up and put them back on their feet. Um, How he did it, it doesn't really tell us. You know, did he give them gifts to be able to start? Did he loan them money? Did he just encourage? We don't know. But he says, you have done all these good things. When you had your wealth, you had your standing. You did a really good job teaching others. So far, so good. Job, you, 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 you've done good things. Um, verse 4, your words have upheld or raised up him that, that falls, and you have strengthened the, the, the feeble knees, the ones that could not stand or, or were stumbling. So he goes, you know, so, so far he's doing really good. You know, Job, you've been a really good man. You've helped, you've helped many people. You've instructed those that needed instruction. You've lifted people up that have fallen. You've supported those that need that were stumbling. And this is all stuff that we should be doing as, as Christians, being able to reach down and, and help people, hold them, hold them up, give them instruction. And so he's doing a good job praising Job. All right? But then in verse 5, but. <laughs> but now it has come upon you, and you faint, it has touched you, and you are troubled. He goes, okay, Job, now here's the big problem. When all these bad things hit you, you have forgotten all the words you use to tell people. You have forgotten how to help people. You know, so what is wrong with you? Basically, he's calling Job a hypocrite. You've helped others. Now it's touched you, and you're forgetting all of your instruction. You're forgetting what to do. Now, I don't think Job ever dealt with somebody who had got hit quite as hard as he did, where they lost everything for no reason. They lost all their family for no reason. They lost their health. So Eliphaz is being a little presumptuous here. And basically, he's telling Job, uh, things aren't as bad as you think they are. And technically, they weren't because God is in control. But you, the way he's presenting it is not a very strong way. He goes, Job, you helped all these people, and now when it's happening to you, you forgot, you forgot all, your wor- all, all the words that you, all the encouragement you would have given somebody else. And I've heard pastors say this themselves. When something bad really happens to them, and they're going, everything I would tell anybody else just isn't, isn't a comfort. And, you know, and I understand that. You know, if you have not been there, you really don't know. All we can do is tell them this is what God says. But when you're in the middle of a problem, what God says does not always ring true. And this is, you know, I've told you all my favorite verse is Romans 8, 28. And I learned the hard way as a young person, don't tell somebody Romans 8, 28 if they don't believe it in the first place. Hard to swallow when it's time. Yeah, it's not comforting unless you truly believe it going in. Uh, and when I've had hard times, I've gone, Romans 8, 20, God, I really don't understand how any of this can be good. You've promised that it's going to be good, and that's all I have is that little rope to hang on to, and I'm tying a knot, I'm tying a knot to the bottom of the string. And by the way, I'm tying that string to me. So that if I lose strength, that string is the only thing holding me up. But if you don't believe it going into a problem, it's not going to be comforting. The truth is not going to be comforting. So basically what Eliphaz is telling Job, he goes, Job, you've had all the right words. You've known what to say. And now that you're there, you don't believe your own words. You know, kind of smacking him in the face. Could this have been a good move? It could be. There's some people that need that kind of a, you know, aren't you going to believe what you, what you say you believe? I don't think this was what, this is not the way Job is going to react. <laughs> all right. Um, verse 6 says, is not this your fear, your confidence, your hope, and the uprightness of your ways? Remember, I pray you, who ever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as you, I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. By this blast of God they perish, and by the breath of the nostrils they are consumed." All right, so here he is. He goes, but, all right, uh, but it has come upon you and you faint. It has touched you and you are troubled. Verse 6 says, is not this your fear? Reference is 
uh, in King James it says fear, but it's reverence fear uh, is what it means. What I'm asking is reverence fear. Yes. And that was what I was going to be ready to say. The, the Hebrew word is reverence or fear. Uh, when we are to fear God, it isn't that we're afraid to come to before God. It is that we reverence his position. He is higher than we are, we, which is a type of fear. I'm not going to just run up to him and, you know, jump into his lap, which we also have the statements to say he is Abba Father, Daddy Father. We have that right to do so. But there still should be some reverence even in that. Uh, respectful fear, a reverential fear. Uh, it goes down to the, the old days when it said, when mom would say, just wait till your father gets home. All right. Dad was a disciplinarian. You loved your dad, hopefully. And he was fair to you, hopefully. But there was also that, that fear. He was a disciplinarian. He was the one that helped control things. So you have the, he goes, is this not your fear? Is this not your confidence? What is your confidence? His confidence was in what he had done. And this is what he's been saying. I don't deserve what's happened. I don't understand. I am not been a terrible sinner. He never claimed that he hadn't sinned, but he's saying I have not sinned bad enough to have my whole world turned upside down. So are they saying, you know, is this like confidence? Or are they saying his confidence was that he had sinned? Yes. Okay. Yes. So does he still believe in basically what we call the prosperity gospel? Yes, he's really on the prosperity gospel. I get you, you get, and this is what... Elipaz is going to teach the same topic. Uh, is it, was this not your hope? Was this not the uprightness of your ways? He's going, you have been claiming that you have been good. All right? That's what this whole verse is saying. You are claiming that you are a good person, that you should be reaping good results, even though we don't see that coming in, but this is his statement. Um, and then verse 7, remember, I pray you, whoever perished being innocent, and where were the righteous cut off? Now, this is kind of an interesting statement because this is the prosperity doctrine. If you do good, bad things don't happen to you. If bad things are happening to you, then you weren't being good. This is what Eliphaz is saying. You keep saying that you've been good. You keep saying that you've been righteous. You say that you have not done anything bad, but I'm going to remind you who's ever done good things and, and, been, and, and died. Who's ever done good things and lost everything? Well, quite a few people, actually. Yeah. With, with my experience, lots of people that are righteous get, get beat up at times in their life. So is this righteous, the righteous cut off? So you mean that cut off from God or cut off from? Cut off from the blessings. Blessings. Okay. The blessings go. In other words, Job, you've lost everything, so you obviously are not the good person you're trying to tell us. These guys were not nice guys with, with Job. They had, con they had convicted him before they even spoke their, their words. You know, because they're going, good people don't suffer. Job, you are suffering. Therefore, you are not a good person. All right? And this is the problem that we have, and this is... I was talking to a guy last week, and he's going, well, here's point A, point B, point C. This leads to point D. You know, and he goes, this is what the Bible says. I'm going, well, I agree with you. If point A and point B are true, then C and D are true. I disagree with you on point A and point B. He goes, but that's what the Bible says. I go, no, that's your interpretation of what the Bible says. And I just dropped it because he's arrogant and will never be correctable. All right? But these guys had a presupposition. Good people do not suffer. Job, you are suffering. Therefore, you are not a good person. And they're treating him just that way. Job, you're lying to us. There is some secret sin in your life that, you, that we did not know about that you're not admitting because good people do not suffer. This is Eliphaz's argument. All right? You're, you're hiding. Job, we don't know what it is. You've appeared to be good. You've helped other people. You've given good advice. But obviously there is some sin in your life that you are not letting anybody know and you are not admitting. So because good people do not suffer, you're suffering. Therefore, you are bad. Most likely. He's a generation ahead of them, as near as we can tell. They're correcting their teacher. And so 
And basically, they're calling him a hypocrite. You taught us this. You have been teaching other people. And this is what the problem is, is Job believes what they're saying. Okay, he believes that good people do not suffer, so he's struggling with, I really don't know why I'm suffering. There is nothing big in my life to make me suffer this bad. But his friends are really making him feel worse, too. Of course. Because they're not believing him. They're They're not believing him. They're not believing that he's righteous. They're calling him a liar, indirectly. Yeah, they're kicking him when he's down. They're making him look bad. And trying to say, Job, there's got to be something in your life because this, the, these kind of things don't happen to good people. And this is a serious statement. You know, they believe that if you are obedient to God, everything good is all that will ever happen to you. The sad thing is most Christians think this way. All right? And it does, the Bible does teach us that God rewards the righteous and blesses the righteous. So there is an easy way to go too far overboard and put God in a box that says he can only reward you and can't test you when you're doing right. And God in this case is saying, uh, let's get back to brass tacks here. I'm sovereign. I can do what I want. All right, not without, not without violating his character, but he says, I can do what I want to do because I created you. I'm the potter, you're the clay, and if I decide that I don't like the picture that you're being made into, I can make you a bowl. I don't like that bowl, I can make you a plate. I don't like you being a plate, I'll make you a pitcher again. You know, he's, that's the point of it, and this is what he told Jeremiah, I am the potter. He has the right to do with us as he pleases. And we can't be saying to him, well, you know what, I don't want to be a plate, I want to be the pitcher. Or I don't want to be the pitcher, I want to be the the clay, the clay bowl over there. You know, we don't get to tell God what he's going to use us for. And this is part of what's going on in this whole situation. Um, and then verse uh, 8. Even as I have seen, who is this Eliphaz talking? In my experience, Job, everything that I have seen in my very short lifetime, which is shorter than your lifetime, which is really short compared to God's lifetime, But everything that I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Very good, very good statement. We reap what we sow, mostly. (laughs) But again, this is the whole foundation of the prosperity gospel. As long as you sow good seed, then God is obligated to make sure that nothing, nothing bad ever happens to you. And if you sow bad seeds, then God is obligated to make sure nothing good happens to you because you've sown bad seed. All right? And Job's this great example of, you know, God's testimony of him. He's a perfect and upright man that hates evil. And here his friend is telling him, Job, you have really done something wrong because we know that you reap what you sow. We know. So this is so bad, you know, Job, what is it that you have been sowing that is so bad that it causes you problems. So that's their, that, that's their statement to it. And Job is struggling with this. Job is struggling with this because he is the same way. I, I should, if I had done bad, then I could say I did this, this, and this, and therefore I am reaping what I, what I sowed. We're going to find out later on that, you know, he, would have, he said, you are terrible comforters. I would have been much gentler on, on the people. But he still would have thought the same thing. Well, he would have still thought the same thing. He might not have said it. He might have been more gentle with them to try to bring it out. Uh, but they're like, you're guilty. We don't have to be nice to you. <laughs> and there are a lot of legalistic Christians and people out there that once they've convicted you, in their mind, they don't have to be nice to you. We, we just slam you up against the wall and make you confess what you've done and because you are, we know you're guilty, so let's just make you admit to what you've done. You know, which is the, the argument against any kind of torture for confession because you make somebody feel bad enough, eventually they'll confess to anything just to quit, quit being hurt. All right, so this is where we're at with them. They're going, Job, uh, you know, from our experience, what we know, bad things, if you sow evil, you get evil. And basically they're saying, what did you do? What have you done? This is their question to him. 
Job, we, don't, we, we always thought you were a pretty good guy. We thought everything was good and that you were a righteous man. But obviously you have some secret sin in your life that God is bringing out and shouting from the rooftops. And this is the problem with the prosperity gospel is God says that we reap what we sow. He says if you do wrong, it'll be shouted from the, the rooftops. So we can play this whole thing out into saying this is why all these things happen. But we've also got to understand, just as I said this morning, God is sovereign and he does what he wants. And we know in the long run, because we've read the whole book, it probably, you know, we know why he's suffering is because Satan is saying, well, if you make life hard on him, he'll, he'll, he'll curse you. So we know why it's happening. We know if you read the last chapter that God is going to bless him when it's all over because he was righteous and, and get the rewards in the long run. He's going to have a long suffering in between. All right. And this is what we need to be very careful of. When we see somebody suffering, when we suffer, our first step is, have I done something wrong in my life? Do I have a hidden sin in my life that needs to be confessed? Maybe nobody else knows about it. And then we go, okay, I confess my sins. And then go, now I have to endure the discipline. If I don't find anything in my life overt, I mean, because we can get really picky and, you know, all of us sin. <laughs> you know, so we can get, well, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. Maybe they had combined enough to say God, God had to discipline me. No, don't go there. But, you know, you're looking in and you have been lustful or covetous and all these other things that go in there. And you go, well, yeah, I've got some major problems in my life and God is trying to help me straighten them out. Confess to God your sin, maybe an accountability partner to help you not do it anymore and just endure the punishment. If you don't find anything, then say, okay, God, what is it you're trying to teach me? Oftentimes, this is what God is trying to teach you is that you don't fully understand what you think you understand. And this happens more often in my life when I think I understand what God says and he goes, let me, let me tweak your understanding just a little bit. We talked about the kingdom of God this morning. The Jews had an idea of a kingdom of God being now. In the, in, the, in the flesh, God says, well, yeah, there will be a kingdom on earth. But for now, the kingdom is in you because I dwell in you. The Jews needed to learn that. The disciples needed to learn that. So what did they do? They went through some hard times to say, let's shake up what you believe. Let's shake up how you think. This prosperity gospel, Job needs to have it shook up. His friends need to have it shook up. And they're going to be learning some great lessons before God. When we did the Truth Project, you know, Dale Tackett said, this was an area that I, you know, he called them cocoons. I, I, it didn't match what I thought. And I had to get into a cocoon so that God can change me. You know, and this is what happens. God brings us into a situation that doesn't match what we think we believe. Or it could be that we believe right and God's saying, are you going to hold on to your belief in the middle of a problem, in the middle of a trial? You know, God, we're supposed to love everybody. Okay, I got it, God. I think I've got that. All right, let's see how well you've got that. Let's put somebody in your life that's very hard to love. Uh, God, I thought I understood this. I thought I was ready for this. You know, this is what's going on with Job right now. God, I really believe that you know that you do righteous and you get rewarded. All right, Job, let's let's test out your your belief. Now he's going to get rewarded. God is going to keep His word and reward him. And Paul said, you know, these these things that are these small events that are happening, these circumstances that are happening, are nothing in comparison to eternity. His mind was focused. He goes, God, you're going to reward me for all these bad things that are happening. I am going to just endure. Now, on his side, he also understood that he deserved it. He persecuted Christians. I think he pretty much believed anything bad that happened to him was a reaping of how bad he was before he got saved. So that was part of what kept him motivated as well. But he also said these light afflictions are nothing compared to the reward in heaven. So we need to understand all of these things of parson. And this is why, as we said this morning, people are looking for, give me step A, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Give me a few steps so that I know that I can get rewarded. 
And God says, no, I don't do it that way. Why? Because he wants us to be in relationship with the rewarder. Not trying to manipulate the rewarder. Because if we're trying to manipulate him, God, I kept the 10, I kept the 10 steps. Why didn't I get reward? And God says, because it's not time. You know, besides which, I didn't give you 10 steps. I want you to have a relationship with me, the giver. And many Christians have a problem with that. They start getting attached to the gifts and the rewards rather than the giver of the rewards. And we want to be very careful. This is one of the lessons that Job is having to learn. You know, that he is to be related to the giver, not to the gifts. And that's true for all of us. We need to be very careful not to fall into that process where we fall in love with the, the blessings rather than the blessor. And it's easy to do. <laughs> I understand it's easy to do. You get so many blessings, so many blessings, and you start thinking of that's normal. And in our fallen world, the blessings are not normal. They are the reward for obedience. And many times we get to the place where we've been walking in the blessings so long that we forget that we got the blessings because we were in a relationship with the giver of the blessings. And then we start focusing in on the blessing and saying, this is the normal way of life. And then when we start doing that, we get to be like Job, you know, hey, I've got all this, I've got all this stuff. I've got to be careful not to do anything to lose it because I've got to, got to follow all the rules and forget that we got it purely by God's grace and by his mercy. So um, Eliphaz says, even as I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. All right. So in my experience, you know, as short as it is, <laughs> this is the only way ever, everything always happens. Nobody ever has bad things happen to them when they do, when they do good things. Now, my experience in watching people is that God does this to a lot of people frequently. Are you going to trust me even if bad things happen? Now, I know in the long run, just as Job, the book of Job teaches us that God rewards at the end, whether it's at the end of the trial, when, you, when you've come through the end of the trial, or by the time you get to heaven, whichever the case, God will reward. And that's been my experience in watch. Why has it been my experience? Because I know the book of Job. If I didn't know the book of Job, I'd have a lot of trouble with the whole idea of bad things happening to quote-unquote good people. This is the value of this book. It tells us that God sometimes puts hard things in our life for a short period of time to see are we going to hold on to the giver of the blessings rather than the blessings. And Job's having a little trouble with that right now. And granted, all of us would. All of us would if our you know, whole life was turned upside down, shaken, and, and, our health was take, and our health was taken. We'd probably be in exactly where Job's saying, oh, woe is me, how can this be happening? I've been following God all these years. Now look what's happened. Now, hopefully we'd be able to turn to the book of Job and say, okay, God, uh, I don't want to be Job, but I'm willing to be patient. Show me what it is that you're trying to teach me. But again, would we do that in the middle of, at the beginning of the trials? How long would it take us to understand that we're in a Job-like situation? The more we walk with God, the more we understand his word, the quicker we should get there to this place and maybe not have to go through all the hassles. And what I've told you is many times I've prayed to God, God, I do not understand how this can work out for good, but I trust that it will work out for good. Now, does that make everything disappear? No, but it changes my attitude toward what's going on. Does it make it any less hurting? Not really. It still hurts. It's still trouble. But I also understand God has a plan, and that does make it easier to go through, even though it hurts while it's, while it's happening. And so this is something that we want to be careful of. Uh, and then verse 9 says, By the blast of God they perish, and, and by the breath of his nostrils they are consumed. He's going, when you do bad things, you, sow, you, you reap these bad things, it's God's judgment. Now, again, this is a place where I will completely disagree with Eliphaz. I truly believe that sowing and reaping is a law that God has placed in this world. 
You sow seed, you reap. God does not step in. Now, God may step in to make the consequence lighter or take it away totally. But when we do wrong or do right, there is a blessing. It is sowing and reaping. It is a law of the universe that God says, I don't have to step in at all. You sow bad seed, you're going to get bad. You sow good seed, you're going to get good. End of story. Law of sowing and reaping. Every religion talks about the laws of sowing and reaping. Do good, you get bad. Karma, you know, you, the idea of karma, you do good, good stuff, good stuff rehappens in the next life. All right? Uh, each religion will talk about that. Do more good than bad and please the deity. All right? Reap, you reap what you sow. It, you know, it's all over in, in the world. So it is a law of the universe. Now, God can step in supernaturally and block the, the reaping if he wants, either good or bad. As he's done in the case of Job, he's allowed something to happen to block his reaping of good and allowing Satan to make life miserable for him. Most often, he blocks the reward for the, for the evil that we've done or lessens it. Now, will he do it very often? No. He pretty much lets us reap what we sow. And we see that over and over again. But he can step in and say, well, you deserve 100 times the the sowing, I'm only going to cut it down to 10 times the, the sowing or an equal amount or I'm going to be really good, I'm going to put uh, a weed killer on it and, and wipe it out for you all together. <laughs> all right? Doesn't happen that way very often but he can step in because he is sovereign. So this is what Eliphaz is saying hey, I've never seen anybody who suffered that didn't deserve it. Now, I don't know how young he was but in my in my 60-some years, I've seen lots of people suffer who didn't, didn't deserve it, you know, at least what we could see. Or we're blessed that didn't seem to deserve it. That really bugs, bugs us. You know, that's why, that's why uh, David said, why do the heathen rage? And you know, why do people laugh at God? And they are doing all these bad things. And they have the mansion on the hilltop and the 919 cars and the servants. And everything looks good. And, you know, that bothers people. It kind of bothers me if I think about it, but at the same time I'm going, okay, God, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes that we don't see. And when you read the person committed suicide or checked into a rehab center or, you know, just totally lost it and went into an insane asylum because they're not following God, and you're going, oh, okay, it wasn't, wasn't what it looked like. They had things in there that bothered them. And this is basically what's going on in here. Verse 10. The roaring of the lions, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lion are broken. The old lion perishes for lack of prey. The stout lion's whelps are scattered abroad. Now a thing was secretly brought to me, and my ears received a little thereof. In thoughts from the visions of night, when the deep sleep falls on men, fear came upon me, and, I, and trembling which made my bones to shake. Then a spirit passed before my face, and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, and I could not discern the form thereof. An image was before my eyes, and there was silence, and I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Behold, he puts no trust in his servants, and his angels he charged with folly. How much less than them that dwell in a house of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, which are, crusted, are crushed before the moth. They are destroyed from morning to evening. They perish forever without any regarding it. Does not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. So here is Eliphaz. Uh, first he says you know, that uh, the roaring lion and the voice of the fierce lion and the teeth of the young lion are broken. He's saying the strength, those that are strong, give their teeth broken. In other words, say, saying, Job, you think, you think that you are so great, that you are so perfect, and now your teeth are broken just like the lions. All right? He's, again, basically calling Job a liar. <laughs> you thought you were strong. You're telling us that you didn't do anything wrong. You're telling us that, okay, fine, Job, you are. Now you're like these lions with broken teeth. You cannot, de cannot defend yourself. You cannot get any food. Um, so he's going, okay, so maybe, maybe you were. Maybe you were, but now you're those lions that are toothless. 
you have no strength. So he's, he's kind of being sarcastic with Job. You thought you were one of those lions. You thought you were strong. You were roaring. You, you, were, you were brave. You were all these. An old lion perished for lack of prey. Uh, the, scatter, you know, the whelps are scattered around Job. You know, hey, all right, Job, maybe you were. Why is, God, why is God crushing you? Why is he making you insignificant? If it's really true, why are you like a lion? I mean, it's kind of making fun because, you know, how many lions are going to have broken teeth in their, in their prime? You know, maybe when they get old. <laughs> but you're not going to see, you know, here's my pride of lions over here and every one of them have broken teeth. No, they're strong. They're, 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 and this is, he's making fun of Job again. You know, this is the language that his friend is helping him. And it's, I understand on one side, he's going, Job, it's time for you to admit what you've done wrong. You know, because we know that bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. So what is it that you have done? Now, the problem I have with this is that there's no indication that Job has had a bad life. God's testimony of him is perfect. He started out that you, you've helped all these people that have been in trials and hardships. You know, and now he's calling him twice in, the, in just this small section a liar. Job, what is it that you have done? It is time for you to confess so that God can forgive. His motive is good, maybe. You know, what he's saying is, sounds like he's really wanting Job to say, it's time for you to humble yourself, Job, and admit whatever it is that God is judging you for, because it's got to be pretty big. You've lost everything, Job, so there has to be some really, really big sin in your life. You're, you're a lion that has lost its ability to consume things, the ability to hunt. You are old, feeble, broken-toothed. Uh, you know, really nice, really nice statements. Now he goes into what is going to be very interesting. Now, I don't know how many of you have had exposure to any other denominations outside of Baptist, but this is the kind of language you hear a lot of times in charismatic churches. It's just what Eliphaz is getting ready to say. Basically, we're going to tear it apart, but he says, I heard from God, and this is what God said. All right? And when you're in a place like that, what is that supposed to do to you? You're supposed to shut up and not argue with them because they heard from God. You know, my answer has always been, well, you may have heard from God, but God hasn't talked to me yet, so... You know, I really don't care what you say, but let's, let's look at what he is saying here. He goes, Now a thing or a word was secretly brought to me, and my eyes received a little thereof. I heard this speech of God. I heard an oracle from God, a prophecy from God, is what he's saying. Uh, in thoughts from a vision of the night when deep sleep falls on man. So not only did I hear God speak to me, he came to me while I was dreaming and gave me a vision. Now this is, he's really trying to be powerful here. God gave me an oracle. I heard it on my ears and he gave me a vision while I was sleeping. All right. Uh, Job, you need to really listen to me because God is speaking to me is what he's talking about. You know, so this whole idea of as I am now hearing from God. So it is time for you to listen to me because I am you know, and I don't want to belittle this. There are times when God will speak to you and give you a message. But at that point, you want to not be arrogant when you're res responding to that. You know, it can be simply, this is what God told me. You know, and, and leave it. If they believe it, great. If they don't believe it, it's what it is. And verse 14 says, Fear came upon me and trembling, which made my bones to shake. And he's going, I heard such a message that it shook me to the, to the core. It scared me what I, what I heard. It scared me what I was shown. You know, kind of Daniel went through this when he saw the vision that Nebuchadnezzar was given of the gold statue with the silver, silver chest and the bronze middle and the iron legs and the iron and clay. It, it says it shook him. And when he told it to Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar goes, yep, that's what I saw. And it shook him because it was a very awesome interpretation that followed he said and Daniel said I have seen the history of the world being played out and he gave, gave out all the history of the world well if a person is spoken to in a dream by God do they know for sure I mean how would you you know couldn't you just wake up and think wow that was a really vivid <laughs> 
whatever you think you're hearing from God must line up with the scripture. If it does not line up with the scripture, keep it to yourself until you find out how it does line up with the scripture. And if it doesn't line up with the scripture at all, you did not hear from God. You heard from, you heard from Satan, a demon. You heard from your own imagination. If it does not match up with the word of God, it is not from God. If it matches up to the word of God, then it most likely is from God. And as Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. So if it's a voice that you just doesn't, that doesn't seem to make sense to you, then it's not from God. Even if it matches the, the word of God, it was it, not from him. How much time are you spending with God? Nowadays we cheat because we look at the telephone and we look at the number who's calling us, but do you remember when you used to have to pick up the phone and actually talk to somebody? If you talked to them often enough, you knew who it was. They didn't have to say, hi, this is Dad, or hi, this is John, this, hi, this is Bob. You know, it's like, you know, oh, oh, how are you doing, Bob? I haven't talked to you for a while. You knew the voice. Why? Because you were, had a relationship with them. And the more we are in God's word, the more we know his, the more that we have, have listened to him, the more we know his voice. And that's what Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and the other thing is his voice will not contradict scripture all right now it may take us in places that we do not know how that scripture applied and then we have to get into scripture and say okay oh all right yeah this is scriptural it's not quite the way that i believed it case in point job's friends telling him nothing bad ever happens to to good people no, that's not a true statement. That is not, not, now they, again, I don't want to be too critical on them. This was written before any of the scriptures was written. All right, not that they didn't have God's word. God's word was spoken. Eber spoke God's word. God spoke to his people. It just didn't have a written format yet. All right, at least none that we know, you know, that made it to us. We are very advantaged. We have the Bible. So we know what God says. We do not have to wait for some dream in the middle of the night to, to hear a voice. We do not need to hear God speak because we have his word. And whatever we think is the way we're moving needs to match up to what the scripture says. And it makes it easy for us. I have told everybody, you know, I, uh, Abraham was told to take Isaac up to Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice. I could not have done that because I would have go, God, you don't take human sacrifice, so obviously that was not you speaking. That would, you know, and that would be a right answer in today's world looking at the scriptures. God, it definitely cannot be you because you have said in the scripture that you do not take human sacrifices. And I would tell anybody who told me that, God, that you could not have been hearing God's, God's voice. Why in Abraham's case? Because he was making a picture of Jesus Christ going to Mount Moriah, which is later on going to be called Calvary. And so he took his 30-year-old son up to the mountain to kill him as a sacrifice for, for it and was able to bring him back in a, in a picture of the resurrection. So God used that as a story for us and a picture for us of a father giving his only son in sacrifice and bringing him back alive in resurrection. But again, could we justify that activity in today's world? Well, number one, we don't have sacrifices because Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrifice, so no. We also know that God does not take human sacrifice, so no. So for us, we would go to the word and say, nope, can't do that because it is against your word, so we definitely didn't hear from God. In, in, in Abraham's case, slightly different. He didn't have the word of God, but he knew God's voice. He had talked with God on several occasions. So he knew the voice of who he was talking to. Didn't understand it. God, this is my son. You said this is my son who's going to be the answer to the promise that you gave me that there's going to be a nation out of his out of him and I don't know how one is going to be a nation but you you said that he is going to be the answer and he is the son of promise now you're asking me to kill him yeah I would have flunked that test myself but that's a different story altogether good thing it happened to Abraham and not me so um, so he says I, I saw this I saw something that made my bones to shake it was 
fearful to me. And when I saw this, uh, then a spirit passed before me and the hair on my flesh stood up. He had goosebumps. <laughs> All right. Or fear, you know, terror. You know, if you've ever been terrified, you know, get those bumps coming up and your hair stands up on end. He's saying, what I saw scared me. Now, I'm not sure exactly what, what it was. And we're going to listen to what he says. But what exactly did he say that scared him so bad? We're going to hear what he said. And I don't know why that would have scared him so bad. He goes, the shape that I saw that stood by me, I couldn't, I couldn't make it out. It was a spirit. All right? Um, and it says, I heard a voice saying, Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? Basically what he's telling Job at this point, Job, you keep saying that you were perfect. You're, you're placing yourself above God because God's judgment is because you've got so many bad things happening that there's something wrong with you and you're trying to tell us that you're perfect and you're trying to, you know, and from his point of view, you're trying to make God look bad because you're going through bad stuff. You know, will you be more just? Now, what he's saying is a true statement. Shall a mortal man be more just than God? Answer, no. Plain and simple. So he's giving a valid statement, but he's applying it to Job in such a way that he's saying, Job, you're trying to say that you're perfect, and all these bad things are happening. Tell us that you're not perfect, and yet you're telling us that you're, per that, that you're, that you're good and that you're right. Yeah, again, this, this, it's a very subtle attack that he's making on Job. He is not coming right out and saying, Job, you're a liar. But he really is saying, Job, you're a liar. Job, you, you think all these things. But in the problem that we have with this, every time these guys talk, there's just enough truth in their statements to stand out. We know that you reap what you sow. Yep, we do. We understand that. We understand that we cannot be more righteous than God. Yep, we understand that. Uh, all of these things that are going on that he's saying on it. He goes on to say, Behold, he, God, puts no trust in his servants. And that's a true statement. God, does, God is not saying, I have to, you have to do what I want you to do, and, and if you don't do it, it's not going to happen, because he goes, I'm God. All right? And we understand these are true statements that they're making to a degree. But they're not understanding the sovereignty of God to do what he wants to do in the situation. God said, you know, again, we have chapter 1 and 2 to be able to fall back on. We know that God's testimony of Job is Job is a perfect and upright man that hates evil. God's testimony matches up to Job's testimony. I don't deserve what has been happening to me. And they're going, now we know that bad things don't happen to good people, so Job, you are absolutely lying. You need to really man up and tell us what it is that you have done and confess with God so that you can get rewarded and, and get the spanking over with and just admit that you were bad. We've done this, and then he says, and his angels he charged with folly or error. There's some understanding of even at this point that Lucifer and the fallen angels had fallen from, from heaven. How? We don't know. But he says, God has charged the angels with folly. The one-third of the angels that, that fell from heaven and glory in their walk. So basically, so, no, Job, the, God, God's not going to trust people. And by the way, the angels themselves have done wrong. You know, how can you be trying to justify yourself, Job? And this is the hard portion on this. You know, he does not understand what God says of Job. Job doesn't really understand what God says of, Job, of him either. All he knows is, I have not been that bad a person. I've offered sacrifices. I have not done anything that deserves what's come my way. And they're going, well, Job, you know, bad things don't happen to good people. You don't lose all your wealth with this. And by the way, Job, you think you're, you're trying to make us think that you're right with God and that God has somehow put some special trust in you. And, you know, he doesn't even, he doesn't even hold his angels faultless. You know, so Job, what is wrong with you? This is quite a, 
you know, an attack being made on Job. Much of what is said that, that God has said is Satan planting the seed to you and, move, and activating your mind. Now, I don't want to belittle this. I mean, God speaks to people. God does speak to people, and sometimes it's hard statements that are made. But in this case, because we know the background of this, we know that what he's saying is not a valid statement. Now, the problem is it is true statements. You know, it is true statements. God, man cannot be greater than his maker. It cannot be more righteous than his maker. Uh, cannot be more pure than his maker. God charges you. you know, so you understand this is what Satan does. He is a master at lying. He takes just enough truth into the statements to make it sound real and twists them just enough to make them not valid. And this is, you know, if there is such a thing as a good lie, you know, it, a good lie has elements of truth in it so that it's believable, and then it twists those truths into such a way that it leads us down the wrong path. This is what these arguments, all, all of the arguments made by these guys is going to be just that type of, of statement. Enough truth that it sounds so wonderful. How do cults get started? They start start pretty solid in the Bible. And then they start twisting it just a little bit here, just a little bit here, just a, and toward the end, they're just outright lies, but they get people to follow them by just a little bit, just a little bit. Where did the prosperity gospel, same type of thing. Takes the truths of God, reap what you sow. We've watched all these people, most people who do good don't, don't have bad things happen to them, so now I build this into a to a law that this is the absolute way it goes, then God will never let bad things happen to good people. So therefore, we get the prosperity gospel that God always blesses good and never, never rewards evil and follow this path. And how do we get it into that you can lose your salvation? They'll pull all the scriptures that make it sound like that you can lose your salvation. Those who, and the verses that say, those who continuously do wrong will not see heaven. Well, the problem is when I read that verse and somebody can continuously do wrong without having any conviction, they weren't saved in the first place. They didn't lose anything. They never had it. They might have looked good for a period of time. They might have been well disciplined for a period of time. But everyone who is saved knows that they cannot sin without the Holy Spirit coming into their mind and making their life miserable. Not saying they can't sin, but if you are one of God's children and you're sinning, it's miserable, especially at front. You're miserable. Every time you do it, it's like, you shouldn't be doing this. What do you think you're doing? Why are you doing it? Uh, and it is miserable to sin when you're one of his children. Now, you can do it so long that you can kind of numb that, that guilt down and that everything down, but there's always that time when it pricks you. I know this is wrong. I shouldn't be doing it. You know, when you've got that, then you are not, you can know that you're his child because it bugs you to do it. When you can sin without, without having any at, uh, conviction at all that you're doing wrong, then I would definitely say you need to worry about, are you saved? Because that becomes a question mark. You know, when you know that what you're doing is wrong and you're not convicted that, that it's wrong. Now, it's one thing to do something that you're not really thinking is wrong. And then somebody points it out to you from the scripture or God points it out to you in the scripture and go, oh, I guess I can't do that anymore. And then you start doing it and you're going to be, all right, God, would you, would you just leave me alone? Why did you show me that it's wrong? You know, now, you know, now I can't do what I've been doing all my life and because you're telling me it's wrong. And he keeps convicting and convicting and convicting and convicting. This is when you know you're his child. And I'm not talking about a legalistic you can't do this. This is God speaking to you. And over the years, there are many things that God has said, I can't do that I used to be able to do. There are many things that I can't do that other people can do because God hasn't convicted them. But if I was to do them, God would be in my face saying, uh, I told you not to do this. You're not supposed to be doing this. Why are you doing this? And so we need to be able to understand that this is part of what's going on here. Um, and then he goes in verse 19, and the angels were, or were charged with falling. He goes, how much less them that dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is the dust, which are crushed 
before the moth, and the idea of this moth, this word actually could be translated caterpillar, or even better yet, grass. How easily do we crush grass by walking on it without even thinking about it? And it fit, I think grass is what the actual definition of this, because especially um, when we get to the next verse where it says, they are destroyed from morning to evening. Uh, God oftentimes describes man as being, our lives being as grass. We perish quickly. Grass grows up, dries up, sometimes in one day if it's dry enough. It pops up in the morning while it's cool and, and damp, and by the evening, especially here in the desert, <laughs> it's totally dead. They lived in the desert. They would have understood that, that statement. Uh, Psalm 103.13 says that all of our days are as grass. Quickly pops up, quickly fades away, and when it fades away, it's bundled up and cast into the, into the fire. Psalm 103.15. Uh, 1 Peter 1.24 says the same thing. We are as grass. So here he's saying that, you know, hey, you know, we are nothing. We're just little balls of dust and clay. And when God looks at us, we grow up and we wither away and we die that quick. And can you picture from God's perspective how short our lives are? He's eternal. He's eternal. Even if you're back in Job's day where people are living to be two, three hundred years old, what is three hundred, four hundred years Let's go back all the way to the great patriarchs. You know, thousand years, not quite a thousand years, you know, shy of a thousand years by three decades. A thousand years, but what is a thousand years to somebody who is eternal? Like, blink of an eye, twinkling of an eye. Yeah. You guys, you, how long do you think you lived? Yeah, nothing. Yeah, you're, you're just a flash in the pan. Yeah, we think it's long. We think, we think 90, 100 is a long time, and God's saying, yeah, barely, barely a spark off the, off the fire. Uh, it's totally insignificant. And so he says, they are destroyed in the morning and evening. They perish forever without any regarding of it. You know, people forget you. And we think about this, you know, what we spend our entire life so that people will know who we are. And unless you're ultra-famous... People forget you within a generation or two. You know, want a proof on it? How many people even know the name of their great-great-grandfather? You know, four generations back. I do because I've done some research on it. Do I know anything about my great-great-grandfather? Absolutely nothing other than his name. You know, I'm sure in his day he was probably fairly famous in the family. People knew who he was, what he had done, good or bad. You know, even some of our famous people, let's look at George Washington. You know, depending on how well you've studied his life, you might be able to think three or four activities in George Washington, the founder of our, of our country, the first president, the great leader of the Revolutionary War. How much do we really know about his life unless you've actually done some study on it, as I have? You know, let's pick somebody a little, little less famous. How about Governor Morris? Now, does anybody know who Governor Morris is? He's one of the signers of the, of the Declaration of Independence and a writer of the Constitution. He is the one that brought in how to write it so that Thomas Jefferson could write it. And nobody knows who he is. Other than a handful of us that are crazy historians that know these kind of insignificant, insignificant uh, facts. You know, uh, but the point I'm trying to make is you know, he was very important in his day. Everybody in the, in the 1770s would have known who he was. And nowadays, no, so few people in our day and age would know who he is. Well, they know a little bit about that, that he was a yeah, writer, but, not, but they know nothing about his life. So the point is, our life dies away quickly. You know, and for many of us, we won't, be, we won't be remembered one generation out. Our, our immediate family will know who we are, maybe our grandkids. And outside of that, you know, who, who are you talking about? You know, who, who is it you were talking about? What, what, what did they do? How, you know, how, how did you know them? Uh, and then it says, Doth not their excellency which is in them go away? They die even without wisdom. They just disappear. 
they die and everybody forgets about them. Even if they were excellent. You know, yeah, we know a few things. You know, we as Christians hopefully know some things about Moses and, and Joseph and them. But again, what do we know? We know what's in the Bible. You know, and I've said this many times. We look at Abraham's life. Abraham, the father of Judaism and the father of Christianity. And we have like five stories, four or five stories of his life that are mentioned. And that's the only reason we know anything, because they're in the Bible and we study the Bible. Five events in his life for over 120, almost 130 years of his life, and we get five stories about his life. That, to me, is on one side very sad. Very sad statement that we know so little about the one who is the father of these great nations, the father of these great you know, relationships with God, and we know very little about him. So what is our goal? We need to serve God earn heavenly rewards because we're going to be forgotten we're going to be forgotten on earth and this is what eliphaz is saying you know job you know you know no matter how great you think you are you know you obviously have done some sins and everything that you're not admitting but you know even the great ones are going to be forgotten even the great ones are going to be forgotten as as time goes on and quite a statement to rubbing it rubbing this guy's face who's you know kind of hurting you know job uh, Everybody's going to forget about you. Now, we're still talking about Job today, yeah, so Job has not been forgotten about. Yeah, we have forgotten. But we know one event in his life. Now, it's a pretty big event. It's a pretty big event, but we know that one event, that one little period in his life, and we have a little bit of how he ended his life, that God returned to him twice as much as he lost, and that is... Two next daughters were so beautiful that, they, that every, all, the, all the girls paled in comparison to him. So God blessed, blessed him greatly. And he saw his children to this great, great third generation. So he lived a long time after all this happened. And we just had that little quick, quick synopsis of his end of his life. And that's all we know about him. He's still being talked about to this day. But it's that one little sliver of time in his life where God shook up his life and then rewarded him. And that's all we know about his life. Very famous, very well known, very well talked about. But again, it's just one little tiny place in his life that we know anything about. And beyond that, we don't know a whole lot about him. So we want to be very careful. What is our goal? Is our goal to honor God and be rewarded by God for eternity? Or is it going to be, I want to be great on this world and everybody's going to know who I am, at least for one generation? Now, all these billionaires and millionaires who think they're the movers and shakers of this world, two or three gen generations from now, they're going to go, Soros who? Bill Gates who? You know, they're going to look and say, who are you talking about? Yeah, there's a little footnote in history about them, but I don't remember anything about them. You know, how many of us can name the rich people from the 1700s? The ones that moved and shook the, the country. I can't. <laughs> no matter who you are, you get forgotten. So as we see this, he's being very, he's got a lot of truth in what he's saying. But at the same token, what he's saying is not being applied totally correctly and being twisted just enough to be a problem. And we need to be very careful about that when we speak to people. Are we speaking the truth in love or are we just speaking the truth? Because sometimes the truth can hurt. And sometimes the truth does need to hurt, but it needs to be given in love when it's going to hurt. And many people go, well, I just spoke the truth. Yeah, with a great big sword to cut and leave all kinds of marks. There was no love in your truth. And we need to be very careful how we speak to one another. Husbands and wives do this a lot. I'm just speaking the truth. I, I know more about you than anybody else, and I'm going to speak the truth. And we need to be careful that it is in love that we communicate to people with. A lot harder to do than it is to say. Believe me, I understand. I'm a very blunt person, and unfortunately, sometimes I'm too blunt. You know, and I understand that, and I try to make it better. 
and I, and I really do care for people when I'm giving them even blunt. And I, you know, my daughter jumps on me all the time. She goes, you've got to learn to be a little softer. And I'm going, okay, you're right. But I don't mean to hurt people, but it does happen. You know, and that's true for all of us. We've all said things that were probably maybe even true, but we didn't say it quite the right way. And if we don't say it the right way, it gets taken wrong, and sometimes people get hurt by it. And I'm not sure if Eliphaz is saying things the wrong way. We do know that God gets a little upset with these guys <laughs> because of their, their attitude toward it. But basically, they are the legalistic person. Job, you've done something wrong, and we're going to make sure you understand that you've done something wrong, and we're going to, we're going to push it into your face and rub it in there a little bit until you actually admit that you've that been disobedient. So we're going to close here. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Lord, help us to learn to speak to people with love and care. Help us to always express your heart to others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening and have a wonderful day.